Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Crystal Maria Rogers was born in 1980 to Sherry and Tommy Ballard. At the age of 35, Crystal lived in Bardstown, Kentucky, and was the mother of five. She was described as happy, humble, and caring, and was always there for her friends at the drop of a hat. She was also known as a good mom to her five children who took priority in her life. She was blunt and never scared to tell you how it was. On July 3, 2015, Crystal had a date night planned with her live-in boyfriend, Brooks Houck. According to Houck, he and Crystal went to his mom's farm at 345 Paschal Ballard Lane to feed the cows. Houck's mom also owns the adjacent land to the farm, which equates to more than 250 acres of land. After they returned home, Houck said he saw Crystal playing on her phone as he was going to bed at 11 p.m., He said when he woke up the next day, Crystal and her car were gone, and she has never been seen since. He said he wasn't initially concerned because they had a stressed relationship, and Crystal would sometimes leave home and go stay with her cousin. The last sightings of Crystal were on July 3rd, when her cousin saw her walking out of Walmart earlier that day, and when she dropped two of her children off at her ex-husband's house. In a police interview, Brooks said the two-year-old child they shared together stayed in bed with him the night she vanished. He said the next day, he and the toddler went to his mom's farm for the 4th of July without Crystal because he could not get in touch with her. Crystal's mother, Sherry Ballard, said she also began to worry when she could not get in touch with her. Two days later, on July 5th, Crystal's 2007 maroon Chevrolet Impala was found parked with a flat tire by mile marker 14 of the Bluegrass Parkway. The keys were still in the ignition, and her purse and cell phone were also found inside. The person who found the car called Crystal's dad, Tommy Ballard. Tommy went to the spot and found her keys, purse, and uncharged cell phone inside the car. Her loved one said it was odd to find her car there because she rarely traveled to that area. She was officially reported missing by her mother, Sherry Ballard, that same day. Dozens of friends and family spent the rest of the day searching the highway and surrounding areas, but one person was missing from the search party, her boyfriend, Brooks Houck. The lead detective on the case, John Snow, asked Brooks about the last few days leading up to her going missing. Houck said their disagreement was about her children, but said it was not an argument. The interview was interrupted by Houck's older brother, Nick Houck, a Bardstown police officer at the time. 
Nick told his younger brother he should lead the interview, so Brooks did just that. The next day, Nick was called to testify in front of a grand jury, which led police to suspect he was also involved in her disappearance. At this time, Nick stopped cooperating with the sheriff's office. However, he agreed to a polygraph test after being interviewed by Kentucky State Police. Nick finally took a polygraph test on July 20th after being contacted by the FBI. The examiner expressed grave concerns about the results. On October 16, 2015, Nick was fired from the Bardstown Police Department for interfering with his brother's interview and failing a polygraph. Three months after Crystal went missing, the sheriff announced that she was officially presumed dead. Another couple of months later, Danny Singleton, an employee of Houck's, was arrested in connection to the case. He was indicted for 38 counts of perjury for allegedly giving false testimony before a grand jury investigating Crystal's disappearance. He was a longtime friend and employee of Houck's and knew Crystal very well. She would sometimes even give him a ride home from work in her car. In January 2016, two other men, Vincent Dakota Nethery and Donald Lee Howard Jr., were charged with false reporting. They admitted they had lied to the police when they made statements claiming Singleton had murdered Crystal. Then, authorities executed a search warrant at the Houck family farm off Paschal Ballard Lane, since that was allegedly the last place Crystal was seen. Detectives would not say what they did or did not find on the property, but this would be the first of several searches on land owned by the Houck family. Brooks is considered the prime suspect in her disappearance, but they think Nick may have helped him cover up the crime. When investigators searched Nick's police cruiser, they found blood traces on a blanket and in the trunk, and he could never explain what the blood was from. A white Buick became important evidence when a private investigator found that one was parked at the Houck farm the night Crystal disappeared. The Houck brothers' grandmother, Anna Whitesides, owned a white Buick but sold it several weeks after Crystal went missing. Authorities issued a subpoena for the 82-year-old to testify in front of a grand jury. The subpoena stated the car might have been used to dispose of a body, cleaned and sold in an attempt to prevent evidence from being discovered. Whitesides refused to testify in front of a grand jury. Attorney Jason Floyd said her statement to police and the car buyer's information was enough. A judge later ruled to keep all future proceedings involving Whitesides confidential. In August 2016, police searched the residences of Whitesides and Nick Houck for DNA. On November 19, 2016, 16 months after Crystal's disappearance, her father, Tommy Ballard, was shot to death while hunting on his private property with his 12-year-old grandson, Crystal's eldest son. He had been shot once in the chest and police were able to clear the grandson of foul play and ruled out suicide as Tommy's gun was never fired. It speculated that his killer or killers believed Tommy was bringing too much attention to them in their town. He was largely the face of the effort to have Houck charged with his daughter's disappearance and presumed homicide until he was killed by a single rifle shot in November 2016 in what appears to have been an assassination. Someone wanted to shut him up, even in front of his young grandson, proving how evil and cold-hearted these people are. 
Tommy was looking for answers about his daughter. Unfortunately, the Ballard family has gone through a similar situation before. In 1982, Tommy's sister, Sherry Ballard, was seven months pregnant when she was murdered by her then-husband, Edsel Eddie Barnes, because he didn't want to pay child support. He received a life sentence behind bars. In 2018, Halk was indicted on four unrelated felonies by a Nelson County grand jury. Halk was accused of stealing squares of shingles from Lowe's on three different days in April 2018. Two of the felony accounts stem from April 3rd when he allegedly took 52 bundles and then 48 bundles of roofing shingles from Lowe's without paying for them. The next day, April 4th, he is accused of taking 39 more bundles, accounting for the third charge. The fourth came from April 14th when he was accused of taking 86 bundles. Finally, the misdemeanor stems from April 4th when he was accused of stealing nine bundles. Five years later, on August 6, 2020, the FBI took over the case. One year later, in August 2021, six years after she went missing, federal agents used a cadaver dog to search the Woodlong Springs subdivision, where Brooks House Construction Company built several houses shortly after Crystal's disappearance. First, the FBI narrowed their search to one driveway in the neighborhood and used a jackhammer on the driveway. Then crews were seen carrying loads of materials from the site throughout the week. Neighbors said the hole the FBI dug was at least seven feet deep. According to community members who live near the site, agents also began digging in the yard. The FBI has not disclosed any details of their findings at this location. But on August 27, 2021, they did announce that an item of interest had been recovered from the concrete at one of the homes. According to documents, Halk Reynolds LLC owns three homes in that subdivision, and Brooks Halk is listed as the registered agent for Halk Reynolds. It appears that Halk family members have helped cover up the murder of Crystal. I hope for the sake of Crystal's children that she will be properly laid to rest in the future. On October 17, 2022, the FBI searched the property of Houck's mother's house, Rosemary Houck, and the farm behind the home. It seems authorities may be closing in on Houck as three officers were sent to arrest him for failure to pay a $353 traffic citation fine in Bardstown. The next day, it was announced that he was opening a daycare in town. Many people are astonished that he plans to open a daycare and doesn't think anyone in their right mind would ever bring their child to a daycare owned by an alleged murderer and criminal. Crystal's mother stated that while she is frustrated her daughter has not been found, she is pleased with the work the FBI has been doing. As of November 2022, Crystal has never been found and this case remains unsolved. Brooklyn Shay Farthing was born on August 26, 1994, and it was described as a spunky, tell-you-how-it-is, lovable person who would do anything to help anyone. At the age of 18, she lived in Berea, Kentucky, and was a graduate of Madison Southern High School. She went by Brooke and loved animals, fishing, riding four-wheelers, and had numerous close friends. Brooke was extremely close with her family, especially her sisters, Tasha and Paige. 
On June 21, 2013, Brooke and her younger sister took their driver's test and Brooke finally passed. That night, she attended a party at a girlfriend's house with her sister and cousin and had brought an overnight bag because she planned to stay the night. Her sister and cousin left early at around 8 p.m., leaving Brooke at the party. Sometime after her cousin and sister left, the friend Brooke planned to stay with wanted to spend the night at a boy's house instead, but Brooke was uncomfortable with the idea. They had a small argument, and her friend left the party, leaving Brooke to find a ride home. Brooke left the party at about 2 a.m. with Josh Hensley and another guy, and they drove out to Floyd Brand Road to ride some horses on a farm owned by the Hensley family. Afterward, they then dropped the other guy off at his home at about 4 a.m., leaving Brooke alone with Josh. Josh then took Brooke to a foreclosed home that his family owned in the 100 block of Dillon Court in Berea. The house had no running water or electricity, so it's unknown why they would have gone there. After arriving at the house, Brooke called her sister Paige and asked if their cousin could pick her up. Her cousin could not pick her up because she had been drinking, didn't have a driver's license because she had failed her driver's exam earlier that day. Her sister said that Brooke sounded fine but tired and ready to come home. Brooke said it was no problem and that she would ask her ex-boyfriend, Jared, who she was still friends with, to pick her up on his way home from work around 7 a.m., which was a couple of hours away. Paige offered to wake their mom, but Brooke said no, it was fine, and Jared agreed to pick her up after he got off work at around 6.30 a.m. This is where the story takes a horrible turn. Jared and a few of Brooke's friends started receiving frantic texts from Brooke that said, Can you hurry? Please hurry. I'm uncomfortable and I'm scared. Then strangely, at about 5.45 a.m., her ex received another text message from Brooke's phone that said, Never mind, I'm okay. I'm going to a party in Rockcastle County. You don't have to come get me. He responds by asking her who she is going with, but never receives a response. He then decides she is fine at this point and goes home. Investigators believe that Brooke may have been taken against her will, and they think the last text message sent from her phone was sent by someone else, likely Josh Hensley. It would have been unlikely for her to go to a party at 5.30 in the morning, especially if you were just afraid of the person you were alone with. At 7 a.m., Hensley called the fire department to report a fire inside his home. Firefighters would find the sofa in the house burned all the way through. The fire was so intense, it burned a hole in the floor. Since it was the only thing burned in the house, investigators believe the fire was started on the couch to destroy DNA evidence. Brooke's overnight bag, purse, and boots were left on the porch, but Brooke and her cell phone were nowhere to be found. Later that morning, Brooke never showed up for a car show in Somerset, Kentucky that she had planned to attend with friends. Worried, the friends contacted her family, who was able to track her last known whereabouts to the foreclosed home. Later that day, Hensley, unknown to her family, received a call from Brooke's sister asking about her whereabouts. He told her that Brooke did catch a ride with him and returned to his house, but said he felt awkward and uncomfortable knowing Jared would pick her up, so he left to put the horses back up because he was friends with Jared. Twenty minutes later, Hensley called Tasha back and said he was nervous and scared, 
He tells her that when he returned, the house was on fire, and maybe it came from a cigarette that Brooke was smoking on the couch, but her belongings were still there, so that concerned him. Suspiciously, he never mentioned any of this to firefighters that had arrived at the house that morning. No one has heard from Brooke since that night. Her phone last pinged off the Blue Lick cell tower about 10 minutes from the Dillon Court home where she was last seen. Her family believes she wouldn't have left the Dillon Court house without her belongings and she had no reason to run away. In addition, the area where she went missing is heavily wooded with numerous trails and steep mountainous regions that would take highly skilled searchers to be thorough and know what they were looking for. There are numerous caves and wells and vast properties and areas where a body could be dropped into that would not be easily seen. It was learned during the investigation following her disappearance that Brooke never spoke with anyone about plans to attend a party in Rockcastle County until the text to her ex, which she may or may not have sent. It could have been sent by Hensley, who was trying to buy himself some time and avoid Jared showing up. Also, firefighters deem the sofa fire suspicious. Authorities have searched more than 16,000 acres in three counties in Kentucky, including water searches, but have found no signs of Brooke. Two days later, on June 25, 2013, Brooke's phone pings off a tower in Blue Leak for the last time ever. 30-year-old Josh Hensley would later be arrested on possession of child sexual abuse material on August 5, 2020. Some speculate that the following occurred. She ends up at the house with Josh, and he makes her uncomfortable, so she tries to get someone to pick her up. They get into some altercation, or he attacks her and kills her on the sofa. He checks her phone and realizes she had arranged for a lift home, so he sends a text pretending to be her, saying she's okay. He disposes of her body and burns the sofa to destroy evidence, adding the cigarette detail to his story to explain the fire. Her last known text message that came from her was at 4.30 a.m. when she said she was scared, then nothing for almost an hour. She never sent another text or called anyone, so who would have told her about this party that no one else had heard about, and how did someone know where to pick her up to go to that party? And obviously, she would have never left her boots and overnight bag behind. So, with that being said, Hensley allegedly had from 4.30 a.m. until about 7 a.m. when he called 911 to report the fire. So he had around two to two and a half hours to clean up everything and dispose of the body, then come back to the house, start the fire, and call 911. It's unknown if they ever took his truck to look for evidence on the inside or outside, like sticks, weeds, mud, or something else that could have given them an idea of where the truck had been. Did they take the clothes that he was wearing that morning and the clothes from the night before at the party to look for evidence on them? Many questions remained unanswered, and Brooke's loved ones continue to question why Hensley has not been arrested yet. As of November 2022, Brooke has never been found, and this case remains unsolved. Melanie D. Flynn was born on November 24, 1952, to parents Bobby and Ella Ritchie Flynn. She was described as an energetic, outgoing, and free-willed individual who aspired to be a horse jockey or a singer. 
She traveled to Tennessee to pursue her love for music, and while pursuing her music career, she often went by the stage name Melanie O'Hara. When her music career didn't take off, Melanie moved back home to Kentucky with her family. She was hired as a groomer for a very well-known horse trainer, and besides traveling to the races around the country with him, Melanie also traveled with him to shoot movies and take vacations. At 24, after traveling around and gaining new experiences, Melanie moved back in with her family and quit her job as a groomer and began working as a secretary for the Kentucky High School Athletic Association in Lexington, Kentucky. On January 25, 1977, Melanie's father, Bobby Flynn, a Kentucky state senator at the time, called her and asked her to bring some materials home from the Kentucky High School Athletic Association. She said she would be home with the items after going to her 5.30 p.m. doctor's appointment. Melanie left work at 5 p.m. driving her red 1975 Ford Elite and was seen turning right off Cooper Drive onto South Limestone Street. A witness later reported seeing her talking to someone in a blue van near that intersection. Another witness claimed to have seen her in Nellie Kelly's, a Lexington restaurant at the time. At Nellie Kelly's, Melanie was talking to a man with a pock-marked face and brown hair parted down the middle. After these sightings, Melanie would go missing. She never arrived at her appointment and never came home. Her father reported her missing three days later. Two weeks after she went missing, a police officer found Melanie's car in an apartment building parking lot on Hollow Creek Road in Lexington. The surrounding area was known as a drug spot. Bobby initially believed his daughter might have developed amnesia and wandered off. She had fallen off a running horse in 1972 and suffered a serious head injury that had her hospitalized for months, and she permanently lost her senses of smell and taste. Later that summer in 1977, Melanie's purse was found floating in the Kentucky River near Camp Nelson, 20 miles south of Lexington. Come to find out, Melanie had agreed to become a police informant in order to avoid a marijuana possession charge and avoid ruining her reputation. She had agreed to introduce Detective Bill Cannon to people associated with the drug ring that was taking place in Lexington during the 1970s. To make it seem as if nothing fishy was going on, Melanie would take Cannon to lavish parties thrown by Anita and Preston Madden. When introducing Cannon to the people associated with the drug ring, Melanie would introduce him as her boyfriend. However, when questioned about these allegations, Cannon denies that he and Melanie had any such relationship. Also, being asked about her disappearance, Cannon doesn't think that the undercover work Melanie had been participating in had any connection to her disappearance, but her family believes that Cannon and Melanie were actually dating and that Cannon isn't being honest about it. What's more is that Cannon was the police officer to whom Bobby had reported Melanie's disappearance. Her parents believe Cannon was involved in their daughter's disappearance. Eventually, the story grew into an enormous scandal called the Bluegrass Conspiracy and connected to a multi-million dollar drug smuggling ring. While Cannon was never charged in connection with her disappearance, he was, however, arrested on federal drug charges in 1993 and spent 17 years in prison. 
Bobby and Ella theorized that there was a police cover-up after Melanie's disappearance, and evidence was suppressed. They have publicly stated their theory that Cannon and possibly other police officers were involved in the abduction and murder of Melanie. Her parents couldn't understand why someone would want to get rid of their daughter. Bobby then went to Ralph Ross and asked him to oversee the investigation. At the time, Ralph Ross was the head of the Organized Crime and Intelligence Unit for the Lexington Police Department. Agreeing with Bobby, Ralph didn't think Bill Cannon was doing all these deeds alone. So Ross turned his attention to Andrew Thornton. Thornton was a narcotics officer and lawyer who became the head of the company, a drug smuggling ring in Kentucky. Along with Bill Cannon, Thornton became a member of the Lexington Police Department's narcotics squad in the early 1970s and worked on narcotics investigations with the Louisville office of the DEA. During his tenure, he began smuggling. After resigning from the police in 1977, Thornton practiced law in Lexington. Not only did Melanie date Cannon, but she had gone on a few dates with Thornton as well. Of course, he denied these allegations and said he and Melanie were just close friends. Something else that made Ross look into Andrew Thornton was the fact that just two weeks before Melanie's disappearance, Thornton had been caught stealing pot from the evidence room of the Lexington Police Department. Ross believes that after Thornton was caught, the Lexington Police Department cut him a deal and forced him to resign. Or the other reason that Thornton resigned was that he knew what was about to happen to Melanie. Some say he left for both reasons, but that will never be known. Investigators kept trying to track Thornton down, but were having a hard time. Then, on September 11, 1985, while on a smuggling run from Columbia, Thornton and a partner jumped from his auto-piloted Cessna 404 after dumping out 40 plastic containers full of cocaine in the Chattahoochee National Forest near Blairsville, Georgia. After jumping, Thornton became caught in his parachute and ended up in a freefall to the ground. His body was found in the driveway of Knoxville, Tennessee resident Fred Myers, and the plane crashed over 60 miles away in Hayesville, North Carolina. At the time of his death, Thornton was wearing a bulletproof vest and Gucci loafers. He was found in possession of night vision goggles, a green army duffel bag containing approximately 35 kilograms of cocaine valued at $15 million. $4,500 in cash, six gold Krugerrands weighing 2.8 grams apiece, knives, and two pistols. Three months later, a 175-pound dead black bear that had apparently overdosed on nearly 40 kilos of cocaine dropped by Thornton was found in the Chattahoochee National Forest. The bear became the state's most unlikely tourist attraction after finding and opening all 40 containers and consuming $15 million worth of coke. The story later inspired a 2022 movie titled Cocaine Bear. A local store in Lexington has since bought the remains of that bear. The bear is now stuffed and has become a local legend known as Pablo Escobar, or simply Cocaine Bear and is much loved by the community. Thornton's death also served as the inspiration for the story arc of season four of Justified. 
At one point, Ross had a tip that came from the Texas Hotel in Daytona, Florida. People staying there said they had talked to Melanie and had recognized her from photographs they had seen. Witnesses said that the manners of the woman fit the description of Melanie's manners. It all seemed too convenient, though, and they could never confirm it was really Melanie Flynn. With no trail to follow, the investigation grinded to a halt. In an interview in 2012, a former female Lexington police officer stated, During the time of what was going on, you knew what those people were doing, but no one was going to speak up and say anything about what was going on. Some officers decided to stay out of the drug loop. Mostly, there were rumors, and no one asked whether those rumors were true. The closest that officers out of the loop got to anything that was going on with the company was security at the lavish parties that Anita Madden had thrown at her house at Hamburg Place. The officers were asked to do security at a party. They thought it was overtime, and at the time, they just wanted the extra money. They knew the people that were around and what the people were doing. Also, they were told people were not supposed to be let into the parties, and if they tried to come, they would be escorted off the property. When looking at all the evidence, it's hard to put what happened to Melanie together into one solid solution. Rumors had floated that she was hidden at the rock quarry near Halls on the river. Also, another rumor surfaced that Melanie was buried in the concrete within the walls of an apartment complex. As a result, her loved ones may never know what truly happened to her. In 2019, investigators dug in different areas near Murphy's Landing along the Kentucky River on US-68 after a credible tip led detectives to the campground near Murphy's Landing. Police received a tip about a possible underground tank holding her remains. Sources said the information came from someone who wanted to get this off their chest. Lexington, Kentucky has made major changes since the 70s and 80s. The bluegrass conspiracy has dropped off the radar since the case was closed as a cold case. Still today, outsiders don't know everything that happened during the scandal, nor do most of the people involved. As a result, the truth about that fateful day when Melanie Flynn was kidnapped may never be known, and as of 2022, this case remains unsolved. Rosalind Velasquez was born on March 31, 2005. Her father sadly died when Rosalind was only five years old and her mother raised her and her brother Leandro on her own. At the age of 15, Rosalind lived in an apartment in the Azalea Park area near her school in Radcliffe, Kentucky. She attended North Harden High School, but in August 2020, she was scheduled to start taking classes at home due to the COVID pandemic. Her mother said her daughter is a good girl who is very intelligent, respectful, had a great laugh, and said they were very close to one another. Rosalind took medicine for social anxiety and depression and had also developed a phobia of other people after being heavily bullied in the seventh grade. Her anxiety was so bad at times that she often hid in a walk-in closet in her apartment to cope. On August 23, 2020, Rosalind was hanging out with her cousins after a day of playing on a hoverboard with a family friend. Rosalind was known for going on late-night walks, but always let her mother know where she was, but August 24, 2020 was different. 
Rosalind's mother saw her around 2.30 a.m. in the kitchen filling up her water bottle. After that, Rosalind left for a walk in the early morning hours, but never told her family. After leaving home that night, she was never seen again. While out walking, she was on Instagram Live with a friend. She told her friend that she had taken some pills and was outside walking in the woods. She took her medication with her, but left her favorite belongings behind, which she never went anywhere without. Her iPhone pinged in several different locations in the general area where the apartment was located, which was densely wooded. The last couple of pings were far enough apart to cause investigators to believe that she was likely traveling in a vehicle. Otherwise, she would have been running or walking very fast to cause those phone pings in those spots. Although Rosalind walked away from home in a possible suicidal state of mind and heavily medicated, there is also a question of her possibly being trafficked. Following her disappearance, her mother found a long letter in Rosalind's memory box that she had written to God two years earlier. She spoke of her appreciation to God, asked for protection and guidance, and prayed for her family, especially her mama. Unfortunately, there are very few other details available, and as of November of 2022, Rosalind remains missing, and this case remains unsolved. Jessie Marie Twilight Song Crooks was born in New Mexico on October 22, 1985. Twilight was half Arapaho on her maternal side and part Cherokee on her father's side. When she spent time with her mother, she learned about her Arapaho heritage and created beadwork for her friends and family. At the age of 15, Jessie lived in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and was described as bubbly and energetic with a contagious smile who enjoyed swimming and playing soccer. She was a student at Greenwood High School and lived in the Plano subdivision on Larman Mill Road. Twilight was a straight-A student, and she had written about her dream of attending Harvard University, but she never said what she wanted to do with her education. On August 28, 2001, she spent time with several friends, first having dinner with them and then hanging out and listening to music. After returning home, Twilight took a shower and told her dad and stepmom Linda Crooks goodnight. When her parents woke up the next morning, they found Twilight gone and reported her missing at 6 a.m. Authorities and volunteers in the community started a search, but were unable to find any signs of Twilight. The night she disappeared, her parents remembered hearing the phone ring at 10.56 p.m. Police were able to trace the call to a payphone outside the Plano Country Store. It's believed that she snuck out on foot to meet the person who called her that night. Unbeknownst to her father, Twilight would often sneak out of the house at night to meet up with friends. Nearly two weeks later, a man walking his dog off a trail in a remote area on Matlock Old Union Church Road crossed over to the border of a wooded area when his dog caught the scent of something. That's when the fully clothed remains of Twilight were found. Her killer had made a rather inept attempt to conceal her body by covering her with leaves and plants he had pulled up by the roots. She was found only five miles from her house. 
There were no shoes found nearby, but investigators learned from Twilight's friends that she usually left the house without wearing shoes if she wasn't going far from home when she snuck out. When recovered, the condition of Twilight's body showed that she had been killed the night she went missing. Also, evidence in the area suggested she had been killed in a different location than where her body was recovered. Because of the location where Twilight's body was discovered and the fairly complicated access path to it, investigators believe Twilight's killer was familiar with that area. It is believed that her murder was an impulsive act and not planned and that the person who is responsible still lives in her community. She was wearing an Edmondson County High School baseball jersey with the number 10 in a men's extra-large size, and her parents didn't recognize it. Her family and friends never remembered seeing her wear the jersey before her body was found, but it is possible that she owned it and left the house wearing it the night she was killed. The original owner was tracked down and donated the jersey to a Goodwill collection box in Brownsville. Twilight's purple fossil watch was never located at the scene. This could be an important clue. Perhaps someone will remember someone suddenly having a purple fossil watch or given one around the time of her death. Investigators were able to recover DNA from the scene belonging to her killer. However, investigators have never released the cause of death. This information is purposely being withheld to help eliminate inaccurate and false information. Not even Twilight's father knows the details of the final moments of his daughter's life. Information he prefers not to know until her killer is taken into custody. He wants to keep the image of his beautiful daughter before she was murdered. Over the years, police have interviewed well over 100 persons in this investigation and have tracked down every lead that has come in, but her killer has never been located. Twilight likely knew her killer, and therefore, the people who knew Twilight likely also knew her killer. In 2021, the physical evidence was re-examined and submitted to the FBI's lab for analysis. Warren County Sheriff Brett Hightower said that with the public's help, there might be justice in this nearly 20-year-old case, but it will take someone coming forward no matter how small the information is. As of November 2022, her killer remains at large and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.